Good evening. Well, I just want to take a few moments while you're turning in your Bibles to John chapter number 3 to say a few words. I have to say, listening to the testimonies of discipleship tonight really made me feel at home. Uh, Discipleship is a huge part of what we do in Spain. In fact, we use the same exact curriculum that you use here, only translated into Spanish. And so we're very thankful that we can uh, have that ministry. And really, it is beyond Christ being our foundation. The foundation of healthy churches are healthy Christians. And the foundation of healthy Christians are Christians that have built their lives based upon the foundational truths of Scripture. And one of the things that I love about discipleship is it is not, is not something that we begin and then finish. It is something that we begin and never ends. It is the process in which we are sanctified. And so whether you continue in that active relationship in a discipleship role with your discipler, God will continue to grow you and put people in your path that will strengthen you, encourage you, and challenge your thinking to make sure that your thinking is in accordance with what God says. And so I'm super excited about what you guys are doing here with discipleship, the three that came and spoke tonight. And I can tell you that we as pastors, we also get trembling knees from time to time. Uh, There's not a time where I stand by that I stand behind this desk where I don't feel the pressure of what it is that I'm doing. And so we're excited about what God has begun in your life. Those of you who stood up here, what God is doing in your life, those that are going through the discipleship currently. And I would challenge and encourage all of you who have not gone through it. You've never been through a discipleship in your life, yet you've been saved for many years. Decide tonight to sign up. It'll be a decision that you will not regret the rest of your life. I also wanted to say one thing. Uh, Thank you so much, church, um, for the love and compassion and help that you displayed to myself, to my wife, Grace, to our boys, Gideon and Silas, to my mom, who's here tonight, my brother and his family, and our extended family as we had the loss of my father not too long ago. I don't know why it is so surprising sometimes when the body of Christ acts and responds like the body of Christ should. But I do want to take a moment and thank you all for responding as the body of Christ should. You loved us. You cared for us. Even those of you who never, have never met us came up to us and shared with us that you're praying. And so we thank you so much. And as from a grateful heart that I can say that I'm thankful that we're missionaries from Heritage Baptist Church, and we love each and every one of you. And if we haven't met you yet, please come and talk with me, although you're getting the the lesser half of the relationship of this missionary family. Grace is definitely the best half. And then our boys make up the other, oh, I don't know, uh, would that be an eighth? So it'd be a quarter, and then I'm, I'm right in there with about a quarter as well. So... Uh, Grace is definitely the best half of this relationship. So she's not here, so you'll have to deal with me. I do apologize for that. But please come by. I'd love to get to meet you, uh, as I have met many of you who I've never met before. And uh, we'd love to start a relationship. Also, um, I do want to mention, the prayer cards haven't changed since last year. We were here last year uh, celebrating Christmas and, and Thanksgiving with family, which we had never done before since we've been on the mission field. Uh, that's 15 years now of living on the foreign field. And uh, 
So the prayer cards haven't changed since last year, but if you don't have a prayer card and you'd like one, there are prayer cards on the back. Um, on the inf- is it called the Information Center? I don't know what to call it because every church calls it something a little bit different. But please go by there, grab a, uh, a prayer card, and we'd love to have contact with you. We'd love for you to pray for us and think about us. And I tell this to everybody, and very few people actually take us up on it. But we are truly people of hospitality, and we'd love to have you come and visit us in Spain. Uh, we would love to have you come and visit us in Spain for one reason, because we want to share with you what God is doing in Spain and see if God would burden your heart for the work there. So hopefully by now, I've been long-winded enough, you're there in John chapter number 3. Why don't we look at John chapter number 3, verses 30 through 47. We're going to read these verses real quick, then I'll have a word of prayer, and we'll jump right into the message. I'll try not to be too late tonight, which is code for pastor or preacher. Buckle up. Verse 30 says this, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I received not testimony from man, but these things I say, that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witnesses than that of John, for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me, that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you, from whom whom he hath sent. Him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which, which testify of me. And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. I rejoice, I receive not honor, excuse me, from men, but I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall call on his own name, ye will receive him. How can ye believe uh, which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor, uh, the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, even Moses in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? Let's pray. Dear me, Father God, I thank you so much for this time that we have to come together and Not just read your word tonight, but also to dive into it and digest it. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have free reign in our hearts to convict us where we need convicting, to strengthen us where we need strengthening. And Lord, I pray that tonight we would see your Son clearer than we ever have before. Help us hide the preacher behind the cross, and may the message be the thing that is heard, and may the message be the thing that drives us forward. 
We ask these things in your name. Amen. Have you ever heard somebody say this statement? And I'm sure most of you have. I will believe in God when you provide me enough evidence that he exists. Has, is, has anyone ever heard that, that statement before? I've heard that statement more times than I can count. Maybe you've heard it said this way. Prove to me that God exists and I will believe him. That's maybe a little bit more uh, modern day vernacular. But we hear these sayings all the time. And maybe our response could be, well, how would you like for me to prove that God exists? Is there any greater evidence that God exists than God himself? Because really, the issue is not evidence of God. The issue is the heart of man. You see, the Bible never seeks to prove the existence of God. Not one time. Test me on it. Go through the scriptures. Read it out. Study it out. You will never find one time where God tries in his word to prove his own existence. The Bible assumes that he exists. Why? Because the author of the Bible is God. And the author of all things is God. He is self-evident. It is something that is clearly seen from the beginning of time. This is what we call an axiom, something that is self-evident in itself. It is proof of itself. An axiom is a statement accepted as true as the basis for an argument or, uh, or inference. An established rule or principle or self-evident truth. And so God is the greatest of all axioms. Maybe you've heard a few axioms before. Or maybe uh, these might be new, but here are some uh, pretty popular and pretty easy ones to understand. The sun rises in the east. Is there somebody here today or tonight that would argue with me that the sun rises in the east? Obviously not. It is something that is self-evident. Why? Because every morning the sun rises in the east. The two parallel lines that are on a piece of paper, or if we could uh, stretch them out for infinity... Never intersect. They are always parallel and will always be parallel unless they cease to be parallel. They will never intersect. That is an axiom. And maybe the last one, all right angles are equal. There is not one right angle that does not have 90 degrees, that does not make up 90 degrees. It is impossible to have a right angle without having 90 degrees. These are things that are self-evident. These are things that we don't need proofs of. They are things that we can observe that is self-evident in and of themselves. That's what God is. God exists because God exists. There's no other proof necessary than that of what we can observe and is self-evident to us as human beings. He is the foundation of all things, the creator of all things, the creator of the whole world, including each and every one of us. God created us in a way in which he put in us that self-evident truth of his existence. He is the source of everything. And so none of the Bible writers ever seek out to prove that God exists Because they knew that all men already had God written on the tables of their heart. Romans 2, verses 14 and 16, Paul tells us this very thing. That those that don't have the law of God, that those who are not religious, that those who do not have access to God, they're not Jewish, they're not brought up in this system. When they do that which is of the law, it is proof that the law of God is written in their heart. That's not a quote, this is just a paraphrase that I'm giving to you, but it is what Paul is telling us. 
that God has put in every man's heart who he is, how he is, and all we need to do is trust that which he's put in us. God is self-evident. Until the 19th century, the majority of the world's population believed this axiom, believed this truth. It wasn't until the 19th century that we really see this boom of atheism and this boom of agnosticism. Because every man, every woman, for the most part, believed that God existed. It was self-evident. It was something that they could see in and of themselves and in the creation that God left for us to observe. But while the existence of God is inscrutable, undeniable, and indisputable, the claim that Jesus is God... Now, that requires a little bit more evidence. And we're going to see as to why. And that's what we've been reading tonight. But in order for us to get to the point where we can actually see what these proofs are and what these witnesses are that Jesus is calling to speak of his deity, we need to have a little bit of context. I don't necessarily like jumping into the back end of a, of a, a, a chapter, but I'm going to do it tonight. But I need to give you a little bit of background to, to kind of bring us up to speed for those who are not as familiar with John chapter number 5. Well, at the beginning of John chapter number 5, we see an interesting situation where Jesus, in his traveling, in his ministry, he comes back into Jerusalem. This is after having already done uh, two signs, two miracles, two works of God. And has traveled a great deal, preached uh, quite a few messages up to this point. We don't know exactly how many, but we do know that he is in the ministry and he is on his uh, way of uh, uh, just bringing people to him. And we see him come back into Jerusalem and the Bible tells us that he is coming into Jerusalem to celebrate a, a festival. We don't know what festival this is in the Jewish calendar, and normally the reason why we're not told what the festival is, it's because the festival really has no bearing on what Jesus is about to do. And so really, all we need to know is that Jesus is in Jerusalem, he's there for a festival, and when he comes into Jerusalem, he notices the, the Pool of Bethesda. How many of you have ever heard of the Pool of Bethesda? If you've read your Bible, if you've been in church any time, you've probably heard preaching on the Pool of Bethesda. And while he's walking through this Pool of Bethesda area, this large area, a body of water that has five different, I believe it's porticos or patios. And I have Spanish in my head, it's porticos. I don't know what it is in English. Um, patios, and they're covered. And these are places where people can rest and relax uh, by the cool of the pool. But also, this pool of Bethesda is famous for one reason. It is in these shadows, in these patios, where a great number of people who are paralytic, paralytic, people who are blind, people who have ailments are gathered. And they're gathered there for one reason. They're waiting for, according to the mythology, an angel to come down from heaven, disturb the waters, and the first one into the pool, like all the teenagers at a pool party, right? The first one into the pool is healed. That's the mythology. And it's something that obviously was happening Because there wouldn't be a great number of people that needed to be healed waiting at this pool of Bethesda for the disturbance of the waters. And it's here that Jesus encounters a man who had been 38 years paralytic. He'd been 38 years with this 
palsy. Uh, we don't know exactly what it is. We know that he does not have full function of all of his limbs. We don't know to what extent. But we do know this, that he is brought to the pool and taken home every day. And he does this every day of his life. We don't know if he's done it for 38 years, but we do know that it's been an amount of time that he has a bed there. And he, he is there every day hoping to make it into the water. Jesus sees this man. He goes from this global picture of the pool of Bethesda to the individual picture of this man who is in need of help. And he comes to this man and he asks a question. I'm going to paraphrase. I'm not going to give you the King James for it. He says, do you want to be healed? That's what he asks this man. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed from this paralysis that you have? And of course, the answer that we all would say is, of course, yes. Right? The shortest answer to the easiest question we've ever been asked. Of course I do. But what this man does is interesting. He doesn't say yes. He said, but I can't make it to the water. The angel comes down and stirs the water and somebody gets there before I can and I can't be healed. What this man was doing was he was focusing on this human mentality and what he could observe and what he could understand about how to be healed, and what he didn't realize is he was staring the healer in the face. And so Jesus says, well, get up, take up your bed, and walk. He doesn't ask him again. It's obvious this man wants to be healed, and it's obvious that this man has no concept of what God is about to do in his life. But he obviously sees, Jesus sees the faith that's in this man's heart. For if a man would come every day and wait for an angel to disturb the water so that he could possibly be healed, what? of course this man has faith. And so Jesus says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And what happens? He gets up, takes up his bed, and walks out of the pool of Bethesda. And it's there where the story gets a little bit more interesting where he encounters these Jews because it's the day of the Sabbath. Quite possibly Pharisees, even though our passage does not stipulate that they are the Pharisees, but these are people that would have been looking to spy out those that were breaking the Sabbath. And they see this man who no doubt they understood who he was. No doubt they saw him carrying a bed because it, because it is the fact that he is carrying his bed that they stop him and said, wait a second, it's the Sabbath, why are you carrying your bed? And this man says, well, this guy, uh, he healed me, and he told me to get up, take up my bed, and walk. And so they hear the fact that Jesus had healed him, even though they didn't know it was Jesus at the time. They didn't focus on the healing. They focused on, yeah, but he told you to break the Sabbath. Why? Because these Pharisees only could see what their religious mind and religious hearts would allow them to see, that which man has to do. That's what was blinding their eyes. They couldn't see the fact that this man who was once laying on, the, uh, on this bed in the pool of Bethesda waiting for a miracle to happen in his life is now walking, and yes, he may be breaking the Sabbath man's rules to keep that which God commanded, but the thing that they lost sight of or they didn't get at all was that God worked in this man's life and so later on this man is in the temple 
Jesus finds him there. We don't know exactly what he was doing, but we can imagine what a man who'd been 38 years paralyzed and is now healed might be doing in the temple. He might be worshiping, right? And so he's there and he's, he's, he's in the temple and Jesus comes up to him. The man finds out exactly who it is. He goes to these who had questioned him and said, hey, you're wondering who it was that told me to pick up my bed and walk. Um, it was Jesus. It was that man over there. And then we see this, this thing become a little bit bigger where these men come to Jesus and say, hey, uh, you enticed somebody to break the Sabbath. In fact, you working this miracle is actually breaking the Sabbath as well. And we see the culmination of this moment in verse 18 where Jesus says, therefore, or when, when John tells us, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. What was the statement that Jesus made? He said, hey, God is working. My father is working and I'm working too. And what the Jews understood him to be saying was that God is my father, and therefore I work the works of my father. I am equal to God. I am God. This was his statement. And this set off bells ringing. Because it's at this point that now we see Jesus mounting a defense of his own deity. Verses 19 through 30 is that first part where Jesus talks about how God has given him power over life. And because God has life, he gave it to Jesus to then be able to give life to those he would. He has power in life, even to the point of uh, in that judgment day, and it talks about this, the great white throne judgment, in that judgment day to judge the living according to those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and those who aren't. And so Jesus is mounting this defense, and we get to our passage tonight, and Jesus calls three witnesses to his deity, because obviously at this point, the fact that he has power over life, which meant he could heal this man whenever he wanted to, the fact that he could do that wasn't enough for these religious people. And he had to mount a greater defense. Why? Because a truth must be confirmed by multiple witnesses. This is something that Jesus understands because it's something that comes from the Old Testament. Jesus says in verses 30 through 31, I can of my, my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness, this is Jesus bearing witness, who is absolute truth in and of himself because he's God. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Is Jesus saying that his witness is not true? Is he saying that he's a liar, that he can't tell the truth? No, he's saying that being a human being, being 100% God, yet being 100% man, he has to abide by the restrictions and limitations of man. And so therefore, he has to abide by that which has already been set up prior to his existence on this earth as the incarnate Christ. So he is making reference to things that we see in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter number 17, we're not going to turn there because it's a passage that's a little bit longer. And for time, I don't want to, I don't want to take up time just reading a passage to prove a point. But it's there where, where God sets forth through his people that when a capital crime is committed, a crime that is... Di- um, Digno, uh, sorry, I'm thinking in Spanish, that merits the death penalty, 
or possibly a punishment that is in the same line as the death penalty, you are required to have two or three witnesses to confirm. Now, it's a little bit more in depth than that, but I'm giving you the cliff notes here. You have to have witnesses before that penalty can be uh, 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 given to that person, the perpetrator. But it wasn't just for capital crimes. Uh, Later on in chapter 19 and verse 15, we see that... It's also a requirement to have two or three witnesses in uh, instances of normal, everyday sins in the life of people, as well as everyday interaction and proving of a truth. And so, uh, verse 15 and 19 of, of Deuteronomy says, One witness shall not rise up against a man of an, of an iniquity or of any sin, in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. So Jesus is saying, hey, the, the, my own testimony isn't enough because I am, yes, 100% God, axiomatically God. But I'm also 100% man. And therefore, I must abide by the rules set forth. And these men were not going to accept anything less than that. And so Jesus begins to call out these witnesses. And he calls out three witnesses. The first witness that he calls is John the Baptist. And we see this in verses 32 through 35. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man. By these things I say that ye might be saved. He was a burning and shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. The first chapter of the Gospel of John, the Jews sent priests and Levites, Pharisees, to John the Baptist to ask him who he was. Because he was garnering a crowd. He was out there baptizing and preaching, and uh, people were following him, and people were uh, being distracted away from Judaism of the day. And so they sent out people to question him, and he, he responds with, with that question of who are you? He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. But John didn't stop there. John gave witnesses to the dignity and deity of Jesus when he says, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you, talking to these Pharisees and these Jews, there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to unloose. But John doesn't just stop there giving testimony of the deity of Christ. Uh, he also says, uh, as he's where there with his disciples, uh, witnessing Jesus walking towards them, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. That's John's testimony. And Jesus is saying, Hey, um, you, you can't just trust my testimony because if it was just me saying it, well, it, it's not reliable because I'm just a human man. But you sent out witnesses to John to find out what was going on, and John testified of me. So John is this first witness, but Jesus wasn't going to stop there. He wasn't just going to stop at two witnesses. He was going to call out another one, and he, he calls upon his own works. Verse 36 says, but I have greater witnesses than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. Jesus is saying, hey, you heard a human witness from me. You heard another human witness from John. And now I'm going to call into witness my character and my own actions. 
And you can see what I've done up until this point. There are people along the way in my ministry that God has used me to touch their lives, heal them, and we see them walking in a different way. A person's actions can show his or her guilt or innocence. They speak to the type of person and the veracity of what it is that they're saying. Even Nicodemus, I'm going into Spanish again. Even Nicodemus recognized this when Jesus said, when, when he said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. He understood who he was, but he came to him to find out more information. And the reason why he came to him was because he saw the works of God in Jesus' life. See, the purpose of the miracles that Jesus was performing, these signs, these works, as John puts it, in other places the, the, the Greek word is dynamos or, or dynamite or power. Here in John, it's a very different word. It speaks to that of, of an actual work that somebody is working. Uh, it speaks to something that is a sign that speaks to the truth of something else or points you to something else. John tells us that these miracles were not just being written down, and they were not just performed and being written down in John's gospel, uh, just so that the immediate effect would be evident and, and be powerful in our lives. No, it was to per, for the purpose of one thing, so that men would see who Jesus is, believe on him, and as a result, have everlasting life. That's John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. That's the whole purpose of the book of John. And that is the purpose of these signs that John is recording in his gospel. He was not just turning water into wine simply to enhance a wedding banquet. He did it to testify that his father had sent him. Not that his mother had asked him to do it, but that his father had sent him to be this person, this God incarnate on this earth, and needed to do signs so that people would trust the witness. He did not heal the officer's son uh, or the paralyzed man that we see here at the pool of Bethesda simply so that they would have a better, better health or a better lifestyle, but so that he could testify by his works that the Father had sent him and that he was equal to God and is God so that all might believe in him. That was the whole purpose. And while John the Baptist drew much attention to Jesus by pointing to him as the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world, Jesus' miracle, his own actions, the signs that he was doing, drew more attention to his ministry to a point where multitudes followed Christ because they wanted to see and hear what he was going to do next. But there's a greater testimony. Not just John, another human being, not just the works of Jesus, his actions, there's a greater witness, a witness with much, much more authority, and especially for the audience who's listening to this defense that Jesus is laying out, and that is God himself bears witness to the deity of Christ. God in his word witnesses or gives testimony to the veracity of Jesus' claim of being equal to God and being God. So when Jesus tells us that there is another that beareth witness of me. Back in verse 32, it's not until about five verses later that we see what he's referring to. He's not referring only to John 
the Baptist, this human that's bearing witness of him. It's not just his works. He is actually making reference to the greatest authority of all. The authority that is an axiom in and of himself. It is true because he is true. God himself bears witness. Verses 37 through 39 say, And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent him ye believe not. He's saying, hey, uh, he's witnessed of me. God has, has, has given testimony that I, that I exist and that I am, I am him. I am equal to him. I am his son, and I am him in presence on this earth in physical form. But you will not listen to that. You did not receive his word. You're not, you've never seen his shape. Uh, you don't have his word abiding in you because if you did, you would have believed who I am. And he continues in verse 39, he says, search the scriptures. He's talking to men who are most likely doctors of the law. Men who knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. Men who knew the every jot and tittle. He says, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. What he's actually making reference to is that in your much knowledge, you think that you have the key that unlocks eternal life. And he says, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And then he says, and they are, the, they are which, that te- that, uh, sorry, and they are they which testify of me. Say, hey, you guys know the scriptures. You're you're, you're touting scriptures saying that this guy's breaking the Sabbath, and now you're accusing me of breaking the Sabbath and also uh, blaspheming by saying that I am God, equal with God. You guys know the scriptures. The scriptures talk about me. What are you missing? That's what he's saying to these guys. Everywhere in the Old Testament, there are shadows and types that are fulfilled in Christ. These prophecies are very clear and specific. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of a virgin and would come from the line of King David. These are just some of the prophecies in one statement that we can go to and see that they are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. These and hundreds of other Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in no other person but the person of Jesus Christ. These scriptures bear witness of him. They bear witness of his deity. And so we have these three witnesses. John, another human witness, testimony. The, the, the same works of Christ, the actions of this uh, God incarnate on this earth. But then God himself bears witness. And we see the increasing authority of these witnesses. But I want to share with you something tonight that is maybe a sad accusation. It wasn't enough. There wasn't enough evidence for these men to believe the claim of Jesus that he's equal with the Father and is God himself. It's verses 40 through 47. I'm not going to read them all, but I do want to share with you maybe verse 40. He says, and ye will not come to me that ye might have life. All these things that I've talked to you about, all these witnesses that I brought forth, the fact that I have power over life and the fact that I can change a man's life with a, uh, not even touching him, just with a statement of get up, take up your bed and walk. 
That's not enough for you. You will not come to me because you do not believe. Jesus is drawing his monologue of defending his deity to a close in these verses. It didn't matter how much evidence there was. It didn't matter how many witnesses he called. They would not believe. We learned that it is not for a lack of witnesses that the Jews do not believe. They have an entire history of witnesses, and yet they would not believe, many of them. The evidence was abundant, but the heart remained in opposition to Christ, which is what we see because they sought the more to kill him earlier. They had read the scriptures. They understood them up to a certain point. They could recite them. They could memorize. They, they could tell you what they've memorized. Many of them had memorized entire books, what we would consider to be books of the Bible at this point. But they did not believe. They did not believe what Moses said. And yet they were fans, if I could put it that way, and not be irreverent of Moses. Moses was their hero. And Jesus is telling them, hey, um, you like Moses, right? But you didn't listen and believe what Moses said. Why? Because if you did, you would believe me because Moses wrote of me. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not your accuser here. You have accused yourself because you will not bend to what God hath said. By not believing the words that God brought through Moses, they would not believe the words that God brought through Christ. They were not halfway there believing in the Old Testament, but not in the words of Christ. They were not even on the road to getting there. They did not believe in the words of Moses, nor did they believe in Christ, as is evidenced by what we've read tonight. The law of Moses condemned them. Jesus did not have to accuse them before the Father because the law had already accused them of their sin. The law came through Moses. Grace came through Jesus Christ. You've probably heard of Charles Spurgeon. He made a statement about this passage. He said, They were great readers of the Bible, great students of the letter of the law but they did not want to come to Christ. And hence, the scriptures themselves became a sepulcher in which they were entombed. They were religious. They knew the scriptures in and out, and yet they were not willing to yield and believe in what the scriptures were teaching. And so therefore, they were blinded. They could not see, much like that man at the pool of Bethesda, who was standing right in front of them. And Jesus, knowing that there was not faith in their hearts, did not offer healing, just a sad accusation. The multiple witnesses of Jesus Christ testify that he is the Son of God. So what does that mean for us? You must believe. There's no other answer. There's no other answer. We have the fact that Jesus is God, and he is God because he is God. He is that foundational axiom that 
uh, really moves everything that we have in this world. But he is God because he has been proven to be God over and over and over and over again in scriptures. But if the scriptures aren't enough, there's a multitude of other witnesses of people that have seen the works of God in, in, in their own life. And they can testify of the veracity of his claim to be God. You must believe. The, so, the central argument of this whole chapter is that Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, then they, that carries with it some ramifications. Being God, he is innocent of the law. And of blasphemy as he was accused of being. And he has power over life and death and will judge all sin according to the truth and according to his will. That is a ramification of Jesus being God. The fact of his deity brings with it more ramifications. Jesus being God means that that he is the promised Messiah. He is Emmanuel, God incarnate, God with us on this earth. Whether we, we uh, uh, choose to acknowledge it or not, he is that. It is proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is. He is the only one who can free the slave, forgive the sinner, and give life where there is no life. John 14, 6 says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only absolute truth. And Jesus is the only life worth living. This is exactly what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees. And he's saying it to us as well. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you've never trusted 100% in his act on the cross of sacrifice as sufficient to forgive you of your sins and to wipe your sins as white as snow to start a new account, to erase everything that happened before. If that is not your testimony, tonight Jesus wants to be your Savior. If you're looking for anything outside of God's pathway to Him, who is Jesus Christ, to, to find acceptance by God, you're like the Pharisees. You've maybe seen the proof and you count yourself maybe a religious person, but unless you're willing to say, forget all of those things, forget all the things that I do in my life, I am going to lean and have confidence only on the cross of Christ. Up until that point, you don't believe. Up until that point, you're not what the Bible would call a son or a daughter of God. A relationship with God is not something that we earn. It is given to us by God through faith in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Charles Hodge said it this way, No more soul-destroying doctrine could be devised than the doctrine that sinners can regenerate themselves. And this is a truth of both Scripture and experience. It is essential that he, the sinner, be brought to a practical conviction of that truth. What truth? That he cannot regenerate himself. There is nothing that that person can do in order to uh, 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 gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. When he is so convinced, Hodge continues, 
and not before. He will seek help from the only source which, can, which he can get it, and that is God. It is God who is the only source of life. God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Stop trying. You must receive. It's not about what you do. It's about what he did. That's it. As simple and as difficult as that. But maybe you're here today and I think the vast majority of you would be in this group. You're a Christian. You have Christ as your Savior. You believe that Jesus is God. At least you believe that Jesus is God enough for you to have salvation. But I want to ask you a question today. What would change in your life today if you actually lived as though Jesus was God? Remember, Jesus is talking to religious people, people that know who he is or know about him. What would change in your life today if you actually believed that Jesus was God? I want to share with you two graphics tonight. We'll put the first graphic up. This is optimal. This is perfection. So we see a line of time there that's heading towards the right. Then you see a point of convergence, and that's conversion. That's where we, we finally are confronted with the truth of Christ. We're confronted with the truth of our own sinfulness and our need for Christ, and we place our faith in Christ. That's convergence. And we see a line that extends forever, continually, for infinity, upwards, and that is that line of growing awareness of God's holiness, that God is absolutely holy, as Isaiah says, three times over. And we never get to an end point of understanding God's holiness. It's just incredible, and we can never fully understand it. But then we see a line that, is, that uh, uh, signifies our growing awareness of our own flesh and sinfulness. So as a Christian, those are two things that you're incredibly aware of, and it's those two things that we need to be aware of in order for us to actually have faith in Christ so that we confide in him and not in ourselves or not in a system or a church or other things. And so what happens as those lines grow, what should take place is that the cross of Christ should become bigger and bigger and bigger in your life. What does that mean? It means that you believe that Jesus is God. And so therefore, you're not worried so much about God's holiness because it's not up to you to meet the standard. It's up to Jesus. Also, you're not going to worry so much about your sinfulness, although it is, a pre- it is something that preoccupies us and is something that we are convicted over and we should be and deal with it on a daily basis. But it is something that we know deep down inside, Jesus is the only way He's the only solution for my sinfulness, my carnality, my flesh. And so as we grow, as we continue, as we understand God's holiness, as we understand our own sinfulness, what should happen is that cross becoming bigger and bigger in our lives. That's optimal. That's perfection. That's what God wants in our lives. We become so incredibly thankful and grateful for the work of Christ that it's just amazing. But let me show you what's typical. So we still have that timeline, that point of conversion. We still have those lines. But we see 
The cross isn't expanding, right, as we go? We see two blocks there that block us from allowing the work of Christ on the cross from really the cross being magnified in our lives. And what I want to share with you tonight is that oftentimes, because we do not believe that Jesus is God, we allow things to creep into our lives. And those things, I'm going to name them, and this isn't original with me, it's performing and pretending. That top block there is something that we do. When we see God's holiness, we say, well, uh, I've got to do, do something else beyond the cross to be that, that person that, that is holy, that is, uh, meets up to the standard that God has for me. And we forget that we cannot meet that standard. Only Christ can. And so we begin to bring things into our lives and start to perform as a Christian. And we, we, we get our suit coats and we, we put ourselves like this. And man, what a good Christian I'm being, right? And what we're actually doing is we're minimizing the cross of Christ in our life. We're minimizing the work of salvation in our life to something that saved us, but it's not something that sustains us and grows us and and sees us become the Christian that God would have us to be. But maybe we're not so much on the performing aspect. Maybe we're pretending. When we see our sinfulness, we're disgusted by what we see. We see the sins that we commit on a daily basis. And what do we do? We start to camouflage. We start to pretend, oh, I'm not that bad. And guess what happens? We start to look for other people so that we can give examples. Me, look, I'm not as bad as that guy. We start pretending that we're better than we actually are. What would change today in your life if you truly believe that Jesus was God? Just give you a few things here. You would stop seeking your own righteousness and rest in the righteousness of Christ. Do you understand something? When a, when a Christian sins, it does not change God's attitude towards that Christian. His love never fails. God is unchanging. It's not about what we can do, but what he has already done for us. We will stop seeking God's acceptance because of what we can do. Stop seeking our own righteousness, but rest in his. We would also stop having a critical spirit. That's that pretending aspect when we look for other people to show examples as to why we're okay. Having a, we would stop having a critical st- uh, spirit and instead extend mercy and grace. I can't tell you how many times in my own life I have caught myself, and it's something that happens way too frequently, criticizing other pastors, not necessarily out loud to other people, but in my own heart, which is probably a little bit more dangerous. Criticizing other Christians, minimizing what God is doing in their life, all so that I can feel better about who I am. But if I believe that Jesus is God and that he is all that matters, then I don't have to look better than I am. Because before God, I'm declared justified as if I had never sinned. 
I'm perfect in his eyes. But we would also live a life of gratitude to Christ. And that's where that other image comes in. And Eric, if you could put that up. If we truly believe that Jesus is God, then our life would be one filled of absolute gratitude. And you can say, well, Brother Hayes, I'm a Christian. I'm a good Christian. I've been here for many years. I do a lot of things. Yes, but you're, all you're doing is telling me what you seek to do and accomplish in your life. Magnify Christ, not you. We're all guilty of this. We are all the same in this aspect. As Christians, just like with the Galatians, it is so easy to begin with Christ and then take over from there and to do and and accomplish and, and to be seen of men. But really what it's all about is Christ. This is what God wants. Not Justin Hayes being magnified and my works being magnified. No, Christ being magnified. Christ being the focal point. Christ being the essence of my life. And that's what he wants for each and every one of us. You see, the man at the pool Bethesda, a paralytic, he didn't know what Jesus was asking him because he could only understand what he could really figure out, humanly speaking, talking about that myth and all that kind of thing. And so when Jesus said, hey, you want to be healed, he had no idea how to respond. But when Jesus said, get up, walk, And take your bed with you. He did exactly that. He was healed immediately. And these men who were sitting here questioning Jesus, they could not see what was standing right in front of them because they were focused on what man says, not on what God says. You say, well, the law was given by God. Yes, the law was given by God, but man built upon that to create a system that actually clouds what God actually said. Are we like those Pharisees today? Well, we know that Jesus is God, but maybe we're clouded in our everyday actions and our everyday living. And what we end up doing is performing and pretending and end up minimizing the cross of Christ in our life. Or do we get up every day, and this is not just every day, this is a moment-by-moment thing, and say, I am in awe of your holiness and I am absolutely disgusted with my sinfulness Jesus reign in my body today be the God who you are today and help me to yield to you that's what Jesus wants that's what God wants and that's what every Christian ought to desire to do to allow their life to look like that. But to do that, you've got to let go and let Jesus do what he wants to do in and through your life. Let's pray. Dear Father God, thank you so much for this time that you've given to us. Lord, I know that I'm preaching to the choir tonight. I'm preaching to those that are faithful, preaching to those who, predominantly those here that know you, as their personal Savior. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts on an individual basis through your Holy Spirit.
Convict us of sin. Show us where we're pretending. Show us where we're performing in our lives that end up minimizing the work of the cross and the work of Jesus in our lives. And help us to daily, moment by moment, keep those graphics in our minds so that we might be able to yield ourselves to what we know to be true, that Jesus is God and he must be magnified in our lives. But that's only going to happen when we truly live as though we believe that Jesus is God. Help us every day to do exactly that. And Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here today that does not know you as their personal Savior, that has not had that point of conversion, has not yet been convicted completely of your holiness and their own sinfulness and their need for a Savior, may that moment be tonight. And may they place their faith and trust in what Jesus did for them on the cross well over 2,000 years ago as sufficient to forgive them of their sins. But we ask these things in your name. Amen. As our heads are bowed, eyes are closed, would you stand there and we'll have a verse of invitation. The Lord spoke to your heart and give you an opportunity to respond this evening. As the piano begins to play, you listen to the Lord this evening. <laughs>